Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the Sports Business Podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Manchester United and Adidas are two of the sports world's most iconic and valuable brands. So the new £900 million 10-year deal, signed recently, has a significance that goes beyond the two organisations and offers a glimpse as to how the sports economy might evolve over the next decade. Let's say Manchester United are going to get paid a 20% royalty at wholesale rates on a football shirt. They're basically getting about £8 royalty on the sale of a shirt. Now, if you look at what one of the other motivations for Nike or Adidas is, which is to acquire the first party data of these customers and take them into their own walled garden. Now, if you look at the estimate on a sportswear brand's what they call lifetime basket value, of a customer signed into their app with personal details and first-party data, it's $650 per customer, and they'll be prepared to pay around $120 to acquire that first-party data record. So if you're thinking on a minimum guarantee model, paying the club £8 on the royalty of a shirt seems quite cheap versus the $120 you might have to pay for a first-party data record. What are the ripple effects of this deal on other football clubs and other sports? Did Man United benefit from Adidas's recent acrimonious split with controversial hip-hop star Kanye West and the costly ending of the Yeezy brand collaboration? And what's the significance of the timing of the announcement, as the Glazer family consider rival offers to buy the club for a fee rumoured to be in the region of £5 billion? To dissect what all this means are our guests Leo Thompson and Michael Broughton. Leo Thompson is co-president of Rights Management at Two Circles and formerly of Manchester United. Michael Broughton is co-founder of Sports Investment Partners and part of the consortium which bid to buy Chelsea Football Club last year. For more on the Adidas Man United deal and its ramifications, read this week's Unofficial Partner newsletter under the heading of Yeezy Does It. Unofficial Partner is the leading podcast for the business of sport a mix of entertaining and thought-provoking conversations with a who's who of the global industry. To join our community of listeners, sign up to the weekly Unofficial Partner newsletter and follow us on Twitter at Unofficial Partner. So the setup is predicated on the, the Man United announcement and I'll read it off ESPN. Man United signed £900 million 10-year deal with kit supplier Adidas. And there's various quotes. So $1.1 billion, renew the partnership with the kit supplier for more than 10 years. German sportswear giant became the club's official kit sponsor in 2015-16 season, reunited after 23 years and taking over from Nike after sealing a £750 million deal in 20, a record at the time. So then it goes on to talk about what it might be about. I want to just start with your first impressions, really. Let's just talk about that. Leo, you were at Man United and you've done various deals with Adidas. We better just flag up your history here. When were you at Man United? 2010 to 2014. So I was there when we did probably the first major transformation in this space, which was the move from... Nike to Adidas, and it wasn't just about that move, it was about the change of complete change of the structure of the deal, which I think has then been pretty transformative for other clubs and how they look at how you structure these deals. So let's land on that then. What was the difference? What happened? Well, I think if you look at Nike's deal back back then, they essentially, for all intents and purposes, owned Manchester United's intellectual property, not just to produce technical apparel, but any 
product that was made with the Manchester United logo on it was was owned by by Nike. So they created MUML, Manchester United Merchandising Limited, which became a company which is responsible for all of United's branded products. So essentially, it was one number. Manchester United transferred the rights to Nike, and Nike then went on to monetize the rights. The transfer from Nike to Adidas was twofold. It moved to what's the typical structure of a deal now, which is there is a sponsorship fee from the the sportswear brand, and then there is a minimum guarantee against the royalty rate on wholesale products that the sportswear brand will sell. The kind of nuance of that as well is what you're selling. So what categories are you selling? What categories of clothing are you selling? So in the case of that transfer from Nike to Adidas, the sales team at Manchester United, prior to the negotiations between Nike, Adidas, etc., were tasked with approaching something like 30-odd categories of clothing to see what they would be prepared to pay Manchester United for a sponsorship slash, slash licensing deal. So as extremers traveling down to the south of France to talk to Vilbroquin about what would they pay to produce Manchester United swimwear, to speaking to outerwear companies like Columbia for what would they pay for the outerwear, and then essentially having the value of those 30 or so categories against what Nike, Adidas, and any other bidders may well then pay for them and the price that any bidder for the rights would pay would be the sum of all of those categories not just one one fee and then let's say i don't know the detail but let's say adidas opted to buy 20 of the 30 categories of rights manchester united could then go and monetize the other 10 categories of rights through sponsorship and licensing deals as you go back in history it's, it's factual you've able to see they did deals with new era headwear columbia outerwear there's a South Korean shoe brand, etc., which then becomes incremental revenue to the already sizable jump that you made from Nike to Adidas. So from Adidas's point of view, just initially, that's a risk to them, presumably. So what the, of those 30 categories say, what they don't put under the umbrella of this deal is a competitive tension for them in, in markets, various markets around the world. They don't want that to leak. Or they might then say, well, we're not in those categories or we're... We don't care about those categories? I think typically it'd be the latter. I don't care about those categories. So again, it goes back to just sharpening the deal making here and and not allowing brands to warehouse rights just for the sake of it. So putting a price against them means that they would pay what it was worth to them. And therefore, if they aren't going to intend to produce dual branded outerwear, then they're not going to pay for it and they're happy for someone else to take those rights. Okay, so we're getting to what the breadth and depth of it because obviously a lot of the commentary goes to, oh, they won't sell that many shirts and people start to then do sums on, well, shirt cost this and, oh, they're going to have to sell a lot to get to 900 million over 10 years. So it's broader, deeper than that, obviously. Now, there's a question of the 900 million, so 90 million over 10 years. What goes into that sort of calculation, Mike? How do they get to a number? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's so many different things that go into it when, when they're calculating. I mean, I always tend to think more of it from the rights holder perspective, selling it, what are they giving up? Nike and Adidas by now are very sophisticated in the way they're going to be thinking about what it is that they want and what they get out of it. It'd be like, what are you selling alongside it? So to me, there, there might be some elements that you almost view as, as loss leaders. Like what is the content that you, you run afterwards and when you're a broadcaster? 
if, if you've got Monday night football, you've got a prime time show straight afterwards and you're viewing it like that. So what draws people into my brand? What, what makes sure that they're spending with me? So I, I don't think it's just as straightforward as X many shirts times. I mean, I, I always laugh because you could have that conversation around, oh, if, if we do streaming and we have 10 million people pay $9.99 a month, well, it's not that simple. I wish it was that then the, the level of mathematics that I'm good at works nicely because it's very linear. I think for me, the, the challenge that you're getting to now is for those big four or five clubs, I think at one time, some of them have even tried to become retailers and then realized that's really not what they're good at. So they have to do that. There is a, we want to go and sell to 30 categories, but actually how much outside of a Man United, maybe Liverpool, one of us, who has the bandwidth to actually do 30 deals in clothing? So will I, as a rights holder, take a little bit of a discount for the simplicity of it's all with one party, whilst not wanting to look like a discount? I think if you're, if you're the brand, it's very much, I'd imagine, and I'm certain these courses exist, which is we need Man United or Liverpool or whoever we're signing up to remain a preeminent face, a name and brand, right? That, because that's what we're paying for. We're paying to have Man United shirts because that's going to attract people. If Man United consistently underperform, does that impact that? I think the remarkable, the most remarkable thing actually about this deal is it's such a big number after an era where you could say Man United have not been consistently at their best yeah, and where they've even moved away from just buying superstars. When you're buying the Pogba's of the world, you can argue, okay, well, they're just bringing in superstars. They'll help us keep selling shirts because people want the Pogba Man United shirt. But yeah, they've moved now to a head coach who's more about team building and a structure that's more around team building than just names. So it lays testament to the work that people have done at Man United the last 10, 15 years, despite being castigated in the media, that at the end of that, they can still command a headline price of 90 million a year. When we start to get into the other side of the deal, so when I look at this through or try and look at this through the eyes of Adidas and I look at the sports market and I look at 10 years, I think 10 years is is an interesting bit to this because... How much of this is risk aversion, actually? Is the question, we can't not do this because one, we'll let Nike in. But also, if you're looking at safe bets in the sports industry, they've just come out of a Kanye West relationship, which these things aren't sponsorships, as Leo has put it there. There's a sponsorship element to this, but they're more like, they look more like joint ventures. And the Kanye relationship was enormously expensive to get out of. And that was all about risk. He, he was just too hot to handle. His views were so absurd or just completely out of whack with Adidas that they had to get rid of him. They had to separate him from, from a corporate comms perspective. In a way, Man United, viewed through that lens, looks like quite a safe bet. There aren't many safe bets in sport, but I'm thinking that actually they reckon that anything could happen over the next 10 years, but Man United will still be around. Leo, what do you, what's your take on that? I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. I think Adidas have looked over the next 10 years, and you know it's, it's not hard for them to do this, right? You can look at when all the big teams' deals expire. They're absolutely committed to, to, to football as a sport, and they would have looked over the next 10 years and said, this is the best deal that's going to be around for the next 10 years. Not to mention the power of Manchester United's brand, which, going back to, to the point previously made... Yes, there has been relative underperformance, but it shows Manchester United is not like a 10-year phenomenon. It's an established, the established football brand. 
And that's what Adidas are buying into. And to go back to the previous point, it's why Manchester United have done incredibly well. With, and remember, there's very little competitive tension here. Probably five or six years ago, you had Under Armour, Uniqlo, Puma, Nike, Adidas competing for rights. Under Armour and Uniqlo have moved away from this space now. Puma, you would argue, don't have much firepower left after the Manchester City deal. So Manchester United have achieved 20% increase in the rights fee with very little or no competitive tension. And that, for me, is that they've got the best team in the business. And James Holroyd, Victoria Timpson and Richard Arnold are the best in the business. And, and Adidas probably also play into that. You know, certainly James and Richard from working at how to really drive return to Adidas, they will have seen that. And one thing I'd reference on this, by the way, is because they're listed on the stock exchange, Manchester United will only be able to talk about the minimum amount of money they can make from this deal. If you look at non-listed organisations, take, for example, Barcelona, who'll talk about, I don't know, 100, 110 million. That might be what their forecast show is the maximum they can make. So there may well be more more juice in the tank on this deal from a Manchester United perspective. But going back to it, I think that they Adidas have looked at this and said, this is the best, safest deal for us to be at the forefront of football marketing for the next 10 years. It's interesting that because of the, as Mike said there, it's in an era where they haven't, this isn't them winning Champions League. They, they've relatively poorly performed on the field. I guess in that 10-year prediction, there's going to be on-field performance. I'm just trying to sort of get to a feeling of what's on their whiteboard, what's in the, that equation. So on-field performance is going to be there, obviously. There's going to be sort of ownership chat because we're right in the middle of this question. And one of the interesting timings of this release has been when it's when they've chosen to announce it. And we know that the club may or may not be about to be sold or parts of it be to, to be sold. And you've got just noise in the ether that is around Man United. Super League will come and go over the next 10 years. But you can bet Man United will be in it, in that conversation, regardless of whether they, whether they go in or not. So... How important is on-field performance? Are they sort of failure-proof, United? How long could they go, Mike, without winning something substantial? Is their job done? Is the job done in terms of they've got... We know they've got a massive fan base compared to Man City, for example. We know they have a massive fan base. We we know also fans are slightly fickle in today's age, maybe not those that live within the 50 miles. And the hardcores will always be there in that sense. But I think there is something about four or five brands in football, maybe as many as 10, where actually they're, they're a safe bet of your partner coming in regardless. If you're Adidas, you look at Man United, you, you even look at their free cash flow and what they can generate and go, well, whilst, again, people like to hit them over the head with, well, you're not doing well, you haven't done this, you haven't done that. They've actually consistently spent money in the transfer market. They've consistently spent money on the stadium. They're going to probably redo a whole new stadium. And they're always going to be there or thereabouts and be in the conversation. Sometimes even, okay, it's because they're finishing six, not first or second, but they're always going to be in the conversation. Well, that's going to help you carry on selling. So to me, I, I'm, it's not that the work is finished. I actually think there's so much left untapped for big brands like Man United, which is why I'm a bull, because I think there's, there's so much more for us to still achieve in, in, in the sports industry. I just think if you're Adidas, you're sat there going, over the next 10 years, that kind of cash flow being generated, they're likely to be 
consistently in the conversation for titles, trophies, top four, which is what counts for them. We can plan it out. We can see forward 10 years, like what are we going to do with this? I imagine they've looked at some of the talent that's being signed and where they're going, going, okay, what else can we do with that? And it's good young talent. So it's one of these deals where I think both sides will be sat there smiling at each other, shaking hands, patting each other on the back, going, I think we did a good deal here, which sounds ludicrous at 900 million over 10 years, plus minus. But I think hats off to both sides, to be honest. And yeah, I think part of it is you don't want Nike to be in there for the next 10 years because it's going to be one of those big brands. And Nike will be sat there going, well, we've got, I don't know, is it Barcelona at the moment? And Adidas is going, well, we've got Real Madrid and Man United. That means something. I mean, you, you can talk to some of the others. Why is Coke in some brands? And you're trying to push out your competitors and make sure that when people think football, they think Adidas. I suppose 10 years, the other point to it is, I mean, so we talk about this sometimes to media rights deals. And, you know, we had Paul doing 10 years of the MLS. And the conversation around that time was, was the relative risk of going that long sides to the club you know and let's calibrate that sort of fluctuation in the deal I mean is there sufficient is it is it nuanced enough to be able to then say right okay if if case scenarios happen they can then start to bail out or whatever yeah look I, I think that there's two major competitions in Manchester United play in the Premier League and the Champions League and the reality is both are very, very difficult competitions to win. So if you talk about winning these competitions, it's pretty tricky. But I think it was widely reported in the last deal, there was a minimum of, if they were out of the Champions League, for I think it was two seasons in a row, then there were deductions to be made. So those appropriate safety precautions will be in there from an Adidas perspective of ensuring that Manchester United are competing in both of those tournaments. And then just, I guess it's then how how deep they can go in, in each of those. But like I say, factoring and winning those those competitions is really, really difficult. I think the interesting thing over a 10-year period is how these deals may start changing the shape. If you looked at the, the transition from the Nike deal to the Adidas deal and how different that was, I think in a world where I think we all thought it was going to go entirely D to C, it looks like there's a hybrid of D to C and wholesale evolving. Now, if you look at that D to C piece, where at the moment, you know, the fundamental is, let's say Manchester United are, are going to get paid a 20% royalty at wholesale rates on a, on a football shirt. So they're basically getting about £8 royalty on the sale of a shirt. Now, if you look at what one of the other motivations for Nike or Adidas is, which is to acquire the first party data of these customers and take them into their own walled garden. Now, if you look at the estimate on a sportswear brand's what they call lifetime basket value of a customer signed into their app with personal details and first-party data, it's $650 per customer, and they'll be prepared to pay around $120 to acquire that first-party data record. So if you're thinking on a minimum guarantee model, paying the club £8 on the royalty of a shirt seems quite cheap versus $120 you might have to pay for a first-party data record. So it then becomes about where did they buy the shirt? Did they buy it in the Manchester United Megastore or did they buy it inside the Adidas app? And the big big focus could be, if you think 20 years ago, the reason that sportswear brands were buying these rights was to emotionally engage the hundreds of millions of fans that these clubs have is there a kind of subcontext now where they're trying to migrate as many of those hundreds of millions of fans' first-party data records into their own 
apps and their own walled gardens, as it were, to further monetize them. This plays to your point, Mike, about you of football clubs is underestimated potentially, if they can crack that. Well, I think it plays to it. And a hybrid's probably not a bad phrase for it, which means we're stuck in the middle. I'm not necessarily a fan of being stuck in the middle. If I am Adidas, I am looking at this probably also on the basis of net present value. Okay, it's 90 million, but over the course of 10 years, this becomes a cheaper deal for me probably each year over time in, in terms of current value of money. 90 million in 10 years' time might seem quite cheap for a deal like this, whereas right now it feels punchy. I think the flip is, let's say you wanted to go more direct to consumer. It does limit your opportunity. So think of what are the fashion apparel tastes of, I don't know, 15 to 35-year-olds. And they, they probably change clothes much more regularly than I do. So the, the ability to do things like Azara will do, which is every six weeks to eight weeks, there's a whole new line coming out, which, which of course, in the press around football clubs would be completely hammered as, as long as the home and away strips kind of stayed roughly the same each year but all the other things that happen how do you stay in vogue how do you build a a fan consumer around the world my argument would be what a single drop of cloves at the beginning of each season feels like a very 1920s way of doing <laughs> something that is what actually people are buying of your club on a real basis so why would you want to do that model on a continual basis for the next 10 years so to me i just think there is it limits your ability when you do a 10-year deal to perhaps be creative within that journey across those 10 20 30 items of apparel that you've now now effectively sold now adidas you know is not going to want to just sit on its backside and do nothing in those 10 years. So I'm being, I guess, harsh on all sides for the point of proving a point, which is where are you going with this? It is much simpler to do this business model for Man United, but it perhaps leaves more dollars on the table than if you'd done something else. If you truly want to embrace a more direct fan consumer business model. Shirt thing is very is contentious, isn't it, that? the annual change of shirt. What you're suggesting, you're, I mean, in a minute, Michael, you're going to be talking about, you know, World Cups and, you know, all of it. But that, if you imagine if Man United said, right, we're going to do a new strip season, new first team strip twice a season, it'd be heresy. Yeah. Be a bloody good business move. <laughs> oh, by the way, on the World Cup, no, I wouldn't, because I actually think the value is in, in, in that one's pure scarcity, right? Whereas when I, so if you, I think if you're thinking about what is the audience for shirts, both the, the actual team strip training gear, but also the casual wear that they sell. And they sell an awful lot of casual wear now. The shirts are the main mainstay, of course. But to me, yeah. And, and that might mean that maybe you're not selling them at 90 a pop. You're selling them at 50 each, but you're hoping to sell. Look, better people are going to be sat there, going to be crunching the numbers, figuring out how would you make this work? But I, I remember doing stuff with EA and I laughed because it, it just seems so weird to me. But they would design in EA, the FIFA game, I guess EAFC now, crazy looking shirts to go on the strip. And I think there was a Man United one that was this like kind of tiger, but lime green and black style. I mean, I thought it was horrendous to look at. And it was a limited edition in the game. And then they did a limited edition in print. And they, they were gone in seconds right and to me i was like well that's really interesting right because now you're you're playing into popular culture 
with limited edition drops. That's really interesting. So how, how would you take that further to start building, again, a better direct relationship with your fans and your consumers so you can ultimately keep them happy by having them spend more money with you? Say about what Adidas want to be over the next decade. I mean, uh, Lee, I'm interested because you've, you've done other deals with Adidas and you know them well. We've had fanatics in this world They've, you know, they're in, and you mm. talked about Ward Gardens, about the the director fan thing, and I can see value. So, would you say that Adidas would, there would be a push to push them to what we need them to be buying this from Adidas.com or ManUnited.com because they appear to be competitors in if they're both, you know, if they're different margin for each one, and then you've got fanatics in there, pick it for us. What's happening at that sort of manufacturer retail relationship? It's changing with the wind at the moment. I mean, you've only got to look at, if you go back through the last couple of annual reports of both Nike and Adidas, where a year ago, it felt like they were never going to sell a single item in that wholesale ever again. Back to, they've come back around and started to have a bit more focus on wholesale. I think they're concerned about the move that Puma made into the void that both Nike and Adidas left as they kind of pursued the kind of post-COVID direct-to-consumer and it swung back around again to, to wholesale. I mean, to use, to use the hybrid example, there are deals occurring in this space at the moment where clubs are uh, contracting to a minimum purchase through a premium sportswear brand, but then running the direct-to-consumer merchandise and retail themselves to increase the margin that they're making. Who knows if that's going to last the course, but I think that's where we're going to start to start to go. I mean, if you think about clubs on a whole, just to step away from, from the Adidas question, but a lot of clubs, certainly when you step away from the really elite clubs, they kind of are doing the direct to consumer already themselves. If you take a mid-table Premier League team, a mid-to-top-tier Premier League team, they might sell 200,000 shirts and 90% of them are done through their own channels, whether it's the mega store or their own online store but at the moment for the sake of security and ease they are sub-licensing those rights either to a sportswear brand and or a version of, of Fanatics. so i think that there's definitely change in the air but i don't think anyone can hand on heart predict exactly where it gets to now i think there's one interesting moment in time coming up which is going to be the end of this decade so in and around 2030 almost every single elite team's sportswear deal lapses so Chelsea Spurs Barcelona Paris Saint-Germain Real Madrid Liverpool all of their deals are going to expire in a kind of two-year window now it feels to me in the direction of travel we're going that there's probably not enough investment around that every single one of those gets to renew at the rate they want with a elite sportswear brand and that they are probably starting to prepare for a world where the best next alternative for them is to go it alone entirely, where they contract a sportswear brand to make the shirts, but then run everything themselves through third-party logistics, through retail platforms like Shopify and or the other alternatives out there, and take it entirely into, into themselves. But as Mike you know, says there, you know, that clubs have tried to be retailers before, and failed, I just wonder in seven years' time whether they might not have another alternative. Oh, I, I think there will definitely be an alternative. What I'm intrigued by, I, and I had not known that fact that most of these would be coming up in a kind of a two-year window, and you're sat there thinking, is there 
is there something the manufacturers and the, the you know the Adidas, Nikes, Pumas of the world know that we don't all in their own planning that might be a, a tipping point for X, and I don't know what X might be, but you know, do we want to be betting on it? What, what's good, or is it just that actually it's quite easy to draw a line in the sand at say twenty thirty and go look, well, we'll see out this decade and see where we're looking going forward. I mean, you can see a few being done before then. I also think just as you said there, Leo, if you think of how quickly technology has changed in the last 10 years, and it's it's only going to get quicker than next 10. Yeah, the capability to perhaps do things that you never used to be able to do. The arrival of a Fanatics where, I mean, I know they say basically that they can, they can print off what you want and then ship it. That's a bit of smoke and mirrors today. They have some capacity to do that. But in seven years, there might be a lot more capacity where what you're not doing as a club, and I don't think clubs would want this now, is to take on warehousing and dispatch. But actually, if you can do as you said and have have a fanatics or a technology stack like that, you're in a pretty good position to start taking more control of your own destiny. I mean, I, I would love to see it. Where sorry to interrupt, I'd love to see it where you could see in a few years' time actually w- within certain parameters, you know, a consumer could come on to a Man United website. It's being the back end is effectively by a Fanatics or an Adidas, but they've used generative AI to create the Man United shirt that they want within certain design parameters allowed by the club, and then it prints and ships to them. That, that to me, that's quite a cool direction of travel for you to see ending up, which is a bit like you, you can go in online and design what your shoe looks like, have your initials printed on it, and they'll send it to you. I think that could be quite fun. Again, how, how do you keep that next? I just want the classic old shirt. You mentioned at the beginning, Mike, and Leo, there's a question here about the halo effect for Adidas of a relationship with a massive club like Man United and a, a property. I wonder how much that plays in we used to talk about nascar about loyal fans and buying sponsors stuff have we ever seen anything that talks to the question of of the relationship between the fans and the brand are they likely to buy more adidas stuff trainers other things because of their relationship with the the club or is that just a story that gets put about i'll keep the the source of this anonymous but we, we spoke with a club who had recently changed partner and they put they put cameras at the bottom of their megastore at the stadium. And when they switched sportswear brands, they monitored what footwear the fans were wearing. And in a two to three year period, the fans overwhelmingly moved from the previous sportswear brand to the new sportswear brand. And, and the data was absolutely overwhelming in that there had been a clear consumer impact we've also seen other data about not just fans of the team but sports fans overwhelmingly trusting a brand that's involved in the game more than a brand that's not involved in the game now, i guess i guess that's probably less relevant in the, in the sportswear space where all of the brands are involved in the game but i guess that's the crucial piece this comes back to is they've got to be in the game they, in some way shape or form they've got to be in the game and it comes back to adidas saying if we're making a 10-year bet on being in the game this is the best 10-year bet for us to make in terms of ensuring we've got that loyalty and trust and confidence of, of consumers. And again, it'll be that, comes back to that piece we talked about in and around 2030 is how many chips these brands, the sportswear brands think they need in the game and whether or not anyone loses out at that moment in time. I had some interesting conversations with fan groups last year around Chelsea. What was interesting was one of the things that was common across all was that 
they were consistent in saying the club didn't care about them, right? And so one of the things that they consistently communicated back to me was, well, because we, we, we're always going to show up, they, I mean, these are hardcore fans. They're showing up for every home and away game. But their view was, outside of that, we don't really actually spend much time with the club, although we're spending all our time on the club. And when we buy it, we probably go to Nike Direct to buy the Chelsea shirt rather than via Chelsea, which I thought was just slightly it was intriguing that these are, these are diehard Chelsea fans. And no, no, it was very cons- very consistent story across the path of, well, they don't really care about us but I really want the Chelsea shirt. So I'm going to go buy it. That's inevitable. I'm just not going to buy it from the, at the same time, if you talk to the retail guys, they'll sit there and say, look, when we lose a match, the shop's empty anyway. Like no one comes into the, 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 the club megastore after a match if you've lost. But if you've won and Drogba scored a hat trick, yeah, I mean, you, you're going to run out of the, the name tags, right? I mean, it's just... It talks to the fans love the club despite the owners, not because of them. And I was going to ask you an ownership question in terms of where we are and what, if you were the incoming, what this deal would say to you? Would you be happy or would you be irritated that it had been done before you got there? Or what, and, and what does it tell you about the total value of the club? I mean, I think you'd, you'd quite like to have done it having just come in and announced a positive news story like this. I think at the same time, it will go to the current owners saying, I, I think your valuations are a bit short. Look, look at what we can do. Yeah, I think if you're buying into any and most businesses like this, you, you'd like to see what is the length and term, what are the forms of the contracts and how much do you, can you genuinely foresee? Because again, the Champions League and Europe has such a big impact. You need to know what your bottom line is going to be and what the upside will be. So I think from a, the incoming investors, I think that will reinforce to them the quality of the brand that they would be buying into, the quality of the club, the way it's run, the quality of the staff that are already at senior levels there. This is not a turnaround. This is coming in and, okay, how do we keep taking it forward? You're each going to have different emphasis. But I think this would give them enormous confidence to keep going with their bid. At the same time, I think it gives the Glazers more confidence to say, well, we can hang out because, look, it's cash generated. We don't need to go anywhere. And if you don't meet our number, why would we sell? And the conversation about the sort of yield per fan and the there's that sort of argument about reframing the value of a football club to make it closer to a tech valuation. Does this help that? It means that there is work to be done with this, as we've said, the sort of the, the D to C argument. But this feels like if anyone's going to do it, Man United and Adidas might pull it off. I, I think the valuations you're seeing are still, I would say Man United is a scarcity valuation. I mean, look, it, it's a really well-run business it's a really well-run business and with the business model that they use which is the typical business model in all football clubs they're in the top two three running it so i think this just reaffirms that but i think you're you're paying this kind of premium for scarcity i'm yet to see any incoming investor in my view actually look at it and go well there's a different business model where we can we're going to un- unlock all that value around the 600 million fans, billion followers, whatever the number is going to be at each club. Because I don't, there's not a single club that has actually unlocked that genuinely. It's a little bit like 10 years ago, the, the broadcast numbers, and, and everyone would look at the broadcast numbers and kind of laugh and go, well, that's not a real number. That's the number of TVs there are in the country. Well, that's not how many people are actually watching. That would be kind of how you'd view it. At the moment, the... Yeah, 
I don't doubt that there are probably 600 million people who have a passing interest in Man United, right? And will sit down and watch their games and, and may even end up buying their shirts or in, interacting with the club. None of the clubs have figured that out. It's in all their decks when it comes to the sale process, but you, you start challenging them on how you're doing that. I mean, I think the, some of your other conversations around the, the squeezed middle that you've had, mm. I mean, I think you're going to see greater challenges because if Adidas is spending this much money on a Man United, there's even more clubs at, at the middle to lower end of the Premier League or top, top clubs across the continent who are going to see their numbers under pressure because Adidas and Nike and Puma aren't going to create just new money to throw at them. It's coming out of the same pot. That's an interesting point, Leo, isn't it? In terms of if, if I'm another club, if I'm not a super club, let's call it, let's use that term. And if I am another sport, this is a signal that Adidas is in football. It's in elite top end football. And mm. I'm a bit worried now, aren't I? Yeah. Yeah. And I think going back to Mike's point, there's scarcity value. I'd probably put Arsenal in there as well. They've got a very oh, good team with it. Juliet. <laughs> with Juliet and, and, and Vinay and certainly Juliet's experience in this space means they'll be particularly innovative here. So there's another good setup there. But I think when you then start to look around, yeah, I think there will be a squeeze more. But I think that that's what my point is. There'll be different models for different for the, for the different teams are out there. And I think, actually, I think there's probably even more of a direct consumer opportunity for, for the squeeze middle, maybe because they're forced to do it or maybe because it starts to present better economics for them by working out how to go go it alone. And I mean, go alone without a Fanatics who obviously, you know, or another merchandising business who may be taking their cut on on, on the way through. But I think that the bigger point on the scarcity factor for me would even be the Premier League and how the Premier League's relentless growth, they're starting to have everyone's dinner across Europe. And that probably also plays into the Adidas bet is, let's make sure we've got what we need in the Premier League. And they've obviously got Manchester United and Arsenal two of the red establishments, and they're probably feeling pretty good about that as a, as a dual bet. Any money left for Spurs, do you think? <laughs> Dan, Daniel's very good at this. <laughs> I just think that this is a good sign for sport. Right? I always take these, and yes, it, it's going to have impact elsewhere in the value chain, but I think it's a good sign that big brands are still willing to bet big money. I think... I've been nervous when you look at, say, the Deloitte reports around commercial and sponsorship and so on. And and they often look like a flat line over the last five, six, seven years, which when you look at broadcast in many markets in Europe being stagnant right now, it's not going up. Italy, it's still pretty flat. And I, I don't think the news coming out of Italy sounds like it's going to be a jump this time around either. So to then be able to look around and see that, the likes of Adidas are still willing to put big money on football and sport to drive the, their core consumers, I think is is good, positive news that we should lean in on. Okay. Yeah, I would back that up that this deal is good for sport. It follows a trajectory that premium rights keep rising. We've seen that over time. But there's also diverse and different methods for everyone else to monetize this revenue stream. I think that's an important piece for us to, to recognize. But I would agree that overall this is a good thing for the sports industry. Okay, well, listen, Leo Thompson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And Michael Brown, thank you very much for your time. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Let you go back to your sunbed in Portugal. Thank you very much. Okay.